the work of like undoing this kind of religious upbringing and religious thinking isn't about simply leaving the beliefs behind. You have to learn how to think differently. You're listening to Out of the Woods, a podcast that showcases stories from people who once strongly believed in something. Maybe it was a religion, an ideology, even a community. And ultimately they decided to leave because it was kind of cultish. In this episode, we're hearing from Kai. Kai was raised Baptist and was raised in a family that was super integrated into Baptist Bible College, which is a college that their father worked at um, as a professor, um, an academic in the field of theology. And their family was also, through their father, um, fairly well connected to some prominent evangelical figures. So they were really in it. Kai reflects on what it was like to grow up in this environment and what it was like to go to college there. And then what came after, which included realizing that they were non-binary and queer and also polyamorous. Kai's story and their reflections on their story provides a window into the process of really rebuilding your entire way of thinking when leaving these spaces and shifting from something really uh, fundamentalist or binary, black and white, into something beyond the binary. I hope you enjoyed listening to Kai's story as much as I did. Can you tell me what the faith was like that you grew up with? Like, what what was the defining belief, but also, like, what sect, um, if that's the right language? Yeah, um, so I was raised in the Baptist church, um, specifically a, a independent Baptist church um, connected to the... Um, I'm gonna screw this up, but I'm pretty sure it's the Greater American Regional Baptist Church or something like that. It's, it's a very loose confederation of um, disparate churches that all somehow believe the same things and function the same way. Um, it's They are very specific that it's not a denomination, even though it's a denomination. I, so it's a, specifically an evangelical Baptist church um, mm-hmm. that actually emerged out of like a very fundamentalist place from when I was y- younger. So I was kind of caught in the middle of that for a while. Like, um, uh, there, there was a whole time period where my brother was playing drums in the background of music for a bit and people in the church got mad. So like, that's, that's where I came from initially. Wow. Um, it's just, oh my gosh. Yeah. 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 (laughs) It was fantastic. The defining belief is a little bit harder because that takes kind of a, a, kind of a brief primer on the different movements inside Protestantism and inside the Baptist church specifically. So I'm going to run that down real fast. Um, so inside, so, so besides the, like the broad, like you have the Catholic church, you have the Orthodox church, and then inside Mm -hmm. Protestantism, you have like the mainline churches was like, you know, Episcopalians and the rest of them. Um, and then you have the independent and Baptistic churches. Um, and inside that you have two broad camps that kind of don't agree at all, but also agree on almost every point except for a few. 
so it's super fun. Um, okay. So <laughs> there's two general forms of thinking. One of them is called Reformed or Covenant Theology. It follows very closely the teachings of John Calvin, or more specifically John Calvin's students, and the people who've drawn on those um, traditions since then. Um, mm -hmm. And then you have what I was raised in, which is called Dispensationalism, which I want to say came to be in like the 1800s, um, which took some of John Calvin's ideas and then a whole bunch of ones that were not and decided that the thing that it wanted to define itself by was the uh, quote-unquote literal her hermeneutic of the Bible. A hermeneutic is just a way of approaching a text. So a literal hermeneutic is just, we are going to approach this text literally. So they take a quote-unquote, they call it a plain reading. Um, some have been pushing for, instead of simply a literal reading, a literal contextual reading, um, which is a little bit more intellectually honest. Um, it's still not because you have to jump through a bunch of hoops, any of it to work, but essentially what, what the words on the text say is what they mean. In the literal hermeneutic, you have to believe in a six day creation period. You, you don't have a choice. Mm. It, it's what the, it's what the text says. Therefore, right. that's what happened. Um, you have to believe in a literal global flood. All of the events of revelation are going to unfold as they are written down even if we don't understand, like, what's being written. Um, so that's that's kind of, that was the broad scope of what I was raised in, was that very specific belief system of um, dispensationalism, which also is, like, there's so much involved in that that's, like, kind of hard to explain because it's essentially a belief that God works. Yeah. The, the reason that it looks like we have, you know, different versions of God in the Bible, rather than being, you know either different understandings of the divine or different understandings of like how God works or just, you know, uh, humanity evolving over time to understand things better. Um, it's simply that God worked differently during different time periods or different dispensations. So that's kind of the broad one. It is functionally indistinguishable from the rest of Christian beliefs when you get down to it. Um, cause we're not, we're talking very minor details. Like there is still, an absolute belief in original sin, in total depravity, um, in in all of those like things that we think of as the tenets, like the main tenets of like the Christian church, um, mm -hmm. in a lot of its worst forms, in my own personal opinion and experience. Um, so it's that's kind of where that that's that's what it was. So very much the literal her literal hermeneutic was the biggest thing that was taught to me. I was taught about five years old. Um, how to read the Bible. Wow. And that was actually, like, I, I remember clearly because my parents got me my first Bible. It was like this tiny Precious Moments Bible. Um, and my dad would sit with me every night and teach me how to read the Bible. And uh, later when I was in college, at uh, a Baptist college, I um, had to take a class on how to read and interpret the Bible. And I actually struggled a little bit because I was doing all of the steps immediately. <laughs> like the guy, like the, the the professor, the provost, and now president of the college, um, had broken it down so like simplistically to teach people, you know, who didn't have weren't necessarily raised in the same kind of stuff that I was, mm -hmm. um, and I kind of had to go to him and be like, I'm struggling a little bit because I am skipping all of these steps, but I'm doing it. Like I know, like right. I'm building all of these things, and he's like, Yeah, no, this is this is happens pretty commonly with people who are like 
you know, your dad's a scholar. How to read the Bible as a scholar from the dispensational viewpoint, which means you're doing all the things that I'm telling you to do. You're just not doing them. You're doing them immediately. And I was like, yeah. Right. That's kind of where that is coming from. Um, yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. So you mentioned that, like, your father was a scholar. Yeah. Um, so how was, what was that like? My father was in school most of my life, like, growing up. Um, he was never, like, very far away because, um, you know, he worked as a pastor and as a principal at the, the school, which were in the same building in the same location um, that I went to. We lived on the property. Like, it was it was fine. Um, he, uh, he initially attended um, Dallas Theological Seminary uh, to get his master or his master work um, done. And uh, they, they did they had some sort of deal with, like, Princeton or something. It was very weird. Um, so, like, mm -hmm. basically, he would commute mm -hmm. for, like, two weeks out of the year or two weeks out of a semester or something and then come back. Um, and he would do, like, the rest of it, like, remote. Um, so he got his master's done when I was... I got a, I don't even think I was 10 yet when he finished that. I wasn't because he started his doctoral work, I think, when I was around 10. Um, he started pursuing that. So he, um, he, he knew pretty much immediately after he converted from Catholicism, he wanted to understand everything about this faith that he was getting into. So he did. Um, he studied at, uh, he had a background in marine biology. Um, so he went to logical seminary for his master work, and then he got in at Baptist Bible Seminary in Park Summit, Pennsylvania. Um, and that is where he graduated from and is now teaching at, um, which it, just from an overview for a second, if at any point an academic institution primarily hires its own students, treat that institution really skeptically. Really? <laughs> good to know. not a good thing. <laughs> no. Yeah. Um, there are like... There are some exceptions to that, like Harvard is going to hire Harvard people. Right. That's, you know, but generally speaking, when you get into like the smaller colleges, it's, you really shouldn't be hiring that internally. And specifically when it's like every teacher at some point attended this college, mm -hmm. that's very suspect. That makes sense. Because you're not bringing in new ideas. Right. It's kind of yeah. cultish. Yeah. Right? Yeah. 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 <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and here you are. That's exactly what it is. Yeah, exactly. That's yeah. exactly what it is. Because um, I, I will say this, and my father is a very intelligent person. Um, he's a, in many ways, a very brilliant man. Mm -hmm. um, and he firmly believes what he says, um, which is part of the problem. Right. Because he doesn't have any shades of gray in, some, in, in his thinking. Um. And I think I think some of the frustrating part for me is that I I really believe that he used to. Um, like I said, when I was growing up, um, the church that he was the pastor of, um, he was the pastor during its transition out of a very fundamentalist place. Um, like it was I I recognize that like I grew up fairly fringe and even in Christian circles. Um, mm. This was worse. Like, there's cults and then there's cults, you know? Um, like, you have cults that are, like... I don't want to, like, necessarily, you know, shit on anyone's beliefs, but, um... You have, like, Mormonism, which is, like, 
really huge buffet out there. And like evangelicalism kind of follows along the same path, at least in my in my head. Um, and then you have like Johnstown. <laughs> and like you have stuff like that. Right. And fundamentalism gets a little bit more towards that side where it's very, very insular communities. Okay. Um and it's it's hard to kind of get into it, but like there was like a time period where like the church insisted that women had to have their head covered. Wow. In church. Really? Yes. Huh. Yeah, based on one passage, and I think it's Corinthians, um, I don't remember if it's first or second, um, that, for the record, we don't actually understand at all. We have no idea why that's there. It seems to be answering a question that the Corinthians had asked Paul that we don't know because we don't have the Corinthians letter to Paul, or whoever was writing that, because I don't remember what actual scholars say. Um, but, yeah, we there's, like, context that we're missing from that, so we don't entirely understand what that passage is for. Mm-hmm. Um because there's a whole bunch of stuff that he roots back into the quote-unquote creation order. And it's just weird. It's a weird passage. And churches struggle with it constantly because, like, it's 2020. You can't just, like, kind of be like, hey, you're a woman. You need to cover your head before God. Right. <laughs> That's not a thing right. you can just say. <laughs> and yet churches still believe that. Mm-hmm. So it, it, it leads to some interesting places, especially if you, you know hold to a very literal understanding of scripture right. in which everything should be followed literally. So my dad specifically focuses on the Old Testament um, and specifically on the poetry, which is very interesting. That is um, interesting. So he focuses on the what's called the wisdom, mm-hmm. um, the wisdom books of the Bible, which is like uh, Song of Solomon, uh, Ecclesiastes, Proverbs, and Psalms. Um, oh, and Job. Job gets thrown in there, too. Um, so he, uh, he's pretty much made it his life's mission to understand Song of Solomon from a literal perspective, and best of luck to him. (laughs) (laughs) So, yeah. Wow. Yeah. So, clearly, like, you were really in it. Like, when you were growing up, like... Oh, yeah. Were you... I guess that's more of a question I should ask you. Like, you... Were you, like, did you feel like you believed all of this when you were younger? So, this is, um, yeah. The answer is yes, overall. Okay. Um. (laughs) Yeah. I, uh, I distinctly remember that the the night I quote-unquote got saved, which is, like, the big, like, evangelical catchphrase, you know, like, you're born again, you were saved. Oh, Um, okay. I was five. Whoa. So, I don't know what I was safe from, <laughs> but okay. Um, um, my dad had been like, th- this is very much like one of those weird, the weird parts. Where, like my dad had come into my room every night and we talked about salvation and like believing in Jesus and blah, blah, blah. Um, and I went through the motions a couple of times and like, he'd be like, okay, oh, go tell your mom. And mom's like, what do you have to tell me? And I was like, nothing. And he was like, God damn it. Um, I mean, he didn't say God damn it, but like, that like, was yeah. kind of the idea. <laughs> he was always just like, ah, okay. Um, and so one night, uh, it was actually Easter Sunday. Mm-hmm. Um, so we had Good Friday service uh, a couple days before. We'd had the sunrise service that morning on the beach. We had the regular Easter service. And then we had the Sunday night service. Because that was a thing that happened still. 
Um, so it was after the Sunday, the Sunday night service where my dad had given another Easter message. Um, and we came home. By came home, I mean we walked across the parking lot. Um, and I was sitting at the kitchen table with him, and I distinctly remember being like, oh, I think I get it now. And he was like, fantastic. We're going to pray now, and you're going to accept Jesus into your soul. And I said, okay. And I did. And I danced around the house the rest of the night. Um, wow. Like, it was like, it was a very euphoric feeling, right? Um, and it, like, hit. Like, you, like, felt something. Oh, yeah. Wow. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, like, I actually distinctly remember the next year I was six. And, like, it was Easter, and I was staring melancholically out a window, um, being like, I got saved a year ago because I didn't understand that Easter was a floating holiday. Um, (laughs) (laughs) And my sister was like, okay, you're being weird. And I was like, yeah. Um, I think we were listening to Veggie Tales or something. Like, there was something else happening, too. (laughs) Wow, what a scene. Like, it was, yeah, it it was very much that. Like, I was, I was very in it. And so, like, I think I was, like, seven or eight, and um, they... My dad, you know, my dad really believes in, you know, educating Christians and other people and what they believe. Mm-hmm. So he invited um, an actual, like, but looking back, I've had so many people who are actually, like, big names inside evangelical circles that I just know. Yeah. Um, Interesting. <laughs> like, if you know the name John MacArthur. Uh, so John MacArthur is a very big name, especially on the West Coast. He runs a very large church. Um, he is part of a very fringe movement of counseling that's very terrifying, um, very much on gay conversion therapy. Oh. Real charmer of a person. Wow. My dad did his son's wedding. Um, <laughs> wow. Yeah, like, MacArthur has make, raked in millions of dollars on books that he's written. Wow. Um, I just... Googled like, he's... Him. Yeah. Wow. No, my dad did his son's wedding. Wow. <laughs> that's wild. <laughs> so that's, like, yeah, how it's... deep, like, you were in it. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, so my dad got uh, a, a friend of his, I think, think, think he was a professor, actually, of his at Dallas, um, uh, Sprouls, uh-huh. to, come, oh, to come and give a quote-unquote summer seminar, just like a couple of talks over the course of a week um, at the end of the day, to the church. And... Sprouls wrote a book called What on Earth is God Doing, um, which is an examination of prophetic literature, specifically, like, how the world's going to end. Wow. So I was, like, seven or eight sitting in this class, like, with this, like, timeline that makes conspiracy, like, makes some conspiracy theorists look sane. Wow. Like, I... I... (laughs) If you ever want to, like, go on a trip, like, look up, like, the dispensationalist timeline for, like, the end of the world, and it is hilarious, because we map this stuff. Wow. Beat by beat, we go from Daniel and Isaiah and some parts of, like, I want to say Zechariah is the other one that we try to rely on from the Old Testament, and then, like, right through Revelations and the one passage in Thessalonians that we get, like, the idea of the rapture from, Mm. um... Mm. All of that. So that's where I first really heard about all of it. And I would run up to this dude at the end of everything and be like, I have a million questions and just start asking him. Yeah. Oh, my God. <laughs> and he was like, this is great. <laughs> really? And so he was like open to the questioning? Oh, yeah. We talked a lot. Wow. Like, I, I, 
he was honestly like a really jovial dude. Um, you know, for as much as he talked about most of Earth's population dying. Oh my gosh. <laughs> wow. Yeah, it was so I was like very much on this like, oh, this is absolutely what's going to happen. It's gonna be great and I'm gonna like I I don't know. I get to ride on a white horse at some point, that'll be fun. Um I think I was scared of horses at the time. There's a whole lot of like, <laughs> see that what response is a whole lot of it too, because like, yeah, I was seven. Right. Sitting in a class surrounded by adults listening to this is how the world is going to end. Yeah. That's, that's a lot. It's weird. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And you like, and like, you were in, like you were into it. Oh yeah. It was uh, actually a couple years after that. Um, I'd read revelations a couple of times at this point and I was getting into debates with the Sunday school teacher over the meaning of some of these passages. Oh my gosh. <laughs> and he was like, because like he was like very, very on like, very much on like, so this means China. And I was like, how are you getting that? I don't see China anywhere. It's like, well, China has these numbers of military. And I was like, that's fantastic. But like, you're assuming this is happening tomorrow. Like, it was this really weird back and forth where I was just like, I don't think, I don't think you're correct, sir. <laughs> wow. And like, it was like, a, it was like a group of like three or four other people like in the class with me who were just going that. So like, yeah, that was me at 10. Um, oh my gosh. Precocious. Yeah. Is that the right uh, word? <laughs> <laughs> Maybe. That sums it up really well, yeah. Okay. Um, I... I've always been very curious, um, as a person, I, I generally want to understand how things work, um, mm -hmm. and when you give me a manual and says, say, this is how the world works, I'm gonna want to understand that, um, right. which is actually what ultimately led to problems later on, but, um, yeah, so that was, like, kind of a big deal for me, was, like, being a ten-year-old, reading the Bible, and, like, stressing, trying to understand how these things worked, um, yeah. And so, like, later when, um, after I moved away from, New moved out of New Jersey and moved up into, um, the, uh, the Clark Summit area, um, I went to, like, a more traditional school setting than the one I'd been raised in. I, like, again, had Bible class, and, like, I had youth group and stuff, and I actually remember the youth pastor at the time being like, hey, I'm really excited you're gonna be in my youth group, but, um, I need you to not talk. And I was like, what? And he's <laughs> like... <laughs> like he was really nice about it i will say this he was, he was a cool yeah. dude and uh but he was like it was me and my sister and he's like listen you know all of this stuff like i am not going to teach you anything that you don't know right but these other kids don't know it so like that's where like essentially like what you're gonna have to learn isn't like the stuff it's going to be how do you communicate and, like, work with people who don't know it? Yeah. And again, right. I was 12. Oh my gosh. <laughs> um, wow. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So, so you said, I think, maybe you haven't said it yet, but I know you said it to me, that um, you ended up going to a Baptist college. Yes, right? I, went, I went to the same college my dad teaches at. Well, my dad teaches at the seminary level, not the college level. Um, oh, but I, I went see. to the okay. same school. Yeah. I would, okay. So I actually I actually went to college two minutes away from where I lived, and I still lived in the dorms. Um, really? Which is like, Wait, now? Yeah. No, 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 oh, no, no, wow. no. Oh, God, no. Oh. Um, no. <laughs> oh, oh, no. I understand now. Sorry. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I'm, I'm actually fairly certain that I'm 
go, I would get immediately escorted off that campus. Um, the head of security really? knows exactly who I am and has for a very long time. Like, we, we, we know each other. Um, we've always gotten along, but at this point, um, yeah, I'm pretty sure I would be immediately escorted off campus. Um, I, I might have written a, a letter to um, the president of the college um, and had it published in several local newspapers um, to uh, condemning the, the entire institution for removing a gay student um, when the student had uh, two classes to finish. Oh my gosh. The man was a veteran. Oh, wow. He wasn't going to be on campus. He was going to finish online. That's awful. They said no. Wow. Yeah, it was it was brutal, and it made headlines. Wow. Um, so I, uh, I wrote a very strongly worded letter and published it. Um, so they probably don't want you living in their dorms. <laughs> yeah, I don't think they want me anywhere near the college, to right. be honest with you. Um... <laughs> It's, right. Uh, yeah. Yeah. So when you were like there, uh, what was it like? Were you still in it? I mean, you must have. You must have been right because you went to this to this Bible college. <sighs> so that was about yeah. That's I didn't actually want to go to the Bible college. Okay. Like that was not my plan for my life. Mm. My plan for my life was I was gonna go become a recording engineer. Oh in really? Florida. Yeah. Oh my god. I really wanted to do that. And actually the uh the, the, the president of the college that I later wrote a letter to, he was the vice president at the time, um, he actually had a conversation with me. Like we sat down in Starbucks and he was like, Listen, I know you really want to do this thing and that's great. Come do BBC for a year first, get like the the biblical foundation you need and then go do other stuff. Mm-hmm. And like he knew what he was doing. It was like it wasn't like he knew that once I was there, I wasn't going to leave. And I knew once I was there, I wasn't going to leave. Like, it, there was no really real pretending on that matter. It was just like, okay, I guess this is what I'm going to do now. Because yeah. um, my, my parents were also very clear that, like, they would pay for my college and stuff mm-hmm. only if I went to that school. Because, mm-hmm. um, you know, I got free tuition. Because, you know. Yeah. Faculty kid. Um, right. And actually, at the, th- uh, the time, my mom was still working on campus. So, like, yeah. So, yeah. Both my parents worked at the college that I went to. Right. Um, they worked, like, at the time the seminary was removed a little bit. It was, like, a walkway across a pond and stuff. So, like, I didn't see them unless, like, for some reason they came over to the main campus. Um, but, like, my sister was on campus still at the time because she was a student. And she actually worked for the provost's office and um, was running, like, the student leadership council and stuff. Um, I think it was, I think it was my first year. Uh they hired my oldest brother to like work in the library. BBC was a weird place for me because as much yeah. as I was philosophically and like theologically, I was still pretty much on board with everything. Yeah. I had this was the point where I had questions. I had a lot of questions. Right. And this was the point where for the first time really I could give any kind of vent to my anti-authoritarian vent. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> So, uh, I did. And most of that resulted in, like, kind of mundane, harmless behaviors of just, like, never being around or being on campus. Like, I spent most of my first year being very antisocial with most of the people I was around. I had a job off campus. Um, I didn't really talk to anyone. I had, I'd come, came into school dating someone who I dated through the rest of college. Um, so, like, yeah, I was very much in it but at the same time I was kind of like removed from it and right. I thought a lot of the rules were stupid um yeah so do you feel like it like you would say then 
like you were in it sort of intellectually, maybe spiritually, like the faith, but just not the institution? I that's a that's a fairly good way of saying it. Um yeah, it's hard because like I didn't know anything else. Mm-hmm. It wasn't like I had other options. Um so I still believed all the same stuff and like I was still like this was the first time I was really exposed to people who believed things differently than I did. But again, they weren't people who really believed all that much differently. They just believed they were just instead of being dispensational, they were reformed. Mhm. So like we were sitting in like, you know, the dorm rooms debating like a single point of theology. Right. From the perspective of a guy who didn't even believe it. Have you not really been exposed to much else? Like, I mean, you know, have have you not really had um, much engagement uh, with, like, an alternate worldview? Um, or at least not much serious engagement at this point? Um, not really, no. Uh, I'd... So, like, I grew up inside the church. I grew up in Christian schools. And I went to a Christian college. Yeah. So at, at like 18, 19, um, I had not ever been in a quote unquote secular environment for any length of time. Oh. I had not interacted with mm-hmm. the vast majority of kids I interacted with had been Christians or at least from Christian families. Mm-hmm. Like everyone around me believed the same things. Everyone around me held yeah. to the same beliefs. And it was an, it was a big deal if you didn't. Like, I... Okay. Like, like how? Um, so, like, I... The, the, the girl I was dating and later married, um... Her family was reform. And it was an interesting time when my parents and their her parents met. Um, because they disagreed very strongly. Um... Oh, uh, wow. yeah, I had, um... Like, I, I knew kids that had, quote-unquote, fallen off the path... And, like, that's actually how it was phrased, who would just be removed from school for various reasons. And it could literally, it could be anything Mm -hmm. from, like, they had alcohol to they had sex to any number of things. Um, And, no, yeah. So, like, I hadn't been exposed to a whole lot outside of my worldview. And, like... Right. I gotten I had worked a couple of jobs, but like initially the jobs I worked like as a teenager, I worked summer jobs. I worked summer jobs at the Baptist college I later went to. Okay, yeah. I like I was right. so this is so insular. It really is. And like it's hard yeah. because like I, I do kind of describe it as being raised in a cult, or at least a pseudo cult, because it is mm-hmm. such a small environment. And this was right. not right. the experience for every kid. Like that was raised in yeah. evangelicalism. Like even inside evangelicalism, my experience is pretty fringe. Um, right, right. I totally that makes sense. Yeah. So actually, it was actually um, there's a podcast called Behind the Bastards, um, hosted by a dude named Robert Evans. Uh, don't listen to it consistently because it will suck the happiness out of your soul. However, the recent episode they came out with today was on a gentleman named James Dobson. James Dobson is a founder and leader of a group called Focus on the Family. Which you've either have heard of or have interacted with and not known. Like, they're a huge group. Really? Odds are you've actually interacted with stuff because they actually promote some public education stuff. 
um, just to get huh. the worldview across. Um, Dobson was a regular visitor to the White House, I want to say, until the Obama years. And by a visitor, I mean he was, for a time, the most powerful lobbyist in Washington. Really? Yes. He he is a terrifying person. Um, if you like actually study like how how he functioned, um, his whole mm. his whole fame started because he started studying like behavioral psychology from a quote unquote Christian perspective. And actually, the, the name I referenced before, John MacArthur, um, he it was him, Dobson, um, a guy named Wayne Mack, and the kind of the the actual starter of all this whole fringe counseling movement, a dude named Jay Adams, um, who they started this concept called neuthetic counseling, which essentially meant that all mental duress and all, like, quote-unquote mental health issues um, are a result from personal sin. Oof. I mean, I'll say, <laughs> I'm trying not to put my opinion in here, but um, I disagree with that. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no, no, I... um. I was in counseling classes listening to these people going, I have questions. And by questions, I mean, what the fuck? <laughs> yeah. Like, what? what is this? Right. Wow. Um, yeah, it was, it was pretty bad. So Dobson actually got famous because he, was, he wrote books on raising children, specifically on disciplining children. Oh, jeez. Oh, no. Yeah. Oh, God. I'm not going to go too much in detail. Um, but he, uh, if you want to read some arguments for child abuse, go ahead and read some James Dobson. Oh, wow. Because he argues for it. And, and essentially it, he argues that because the secular world is so corruptive and children are so quote unquote corruptible, they must be protected at all costs. Mm -hmm. So you found Christian churches and you found schools out of those churches and you encourage, you know, people to donate money to Christian causes and Christian groups, um, like Focus on the Family, which came out with a whole slew of media, uh, audio dramas, uh, I grew up on their big audio drama, Adventures in Odyssey, um, and it was immaculately done. They, to this day, they have studios and millions of dollars, like, they had production teams that worked on actual, like, Hollywood movies and Hollywood things. Wow. That work for them. Oh my gosh. Like that, that's how much money they're talking about. So they've created an entirely alternative form and basically kind of an alternative world where you can interact with the outside world as much as you want, but you don't have to interact with any of the media. Wow. Your kids never have to actually like look at things outside of their viewpoint. And is that how you were raised? Like with that? Yes. So I was actually allowed to watch some hours of television on Wednesday afternoons. Mm -hmm. Uh, and I was only allowed to watch PBS. Wow. And when things like Evolution and Evely came up, because, you know, PBS does not have a Christian censure on it, um, it was explained to me how wrong and deluded the concept of evolution was. Wow. As a child. Yeah. Yeah. So, like, I... It really is this terrifyingly insular thing that I was raised in. And, like, this is kind of, like... I was, I was thinking about this today because I was listening to this episode on, on Dobson, and, like, Dobson really informed my parents' viewpoints on raising children. Oh, my gosh. Wow. And, there, I, you know, when you kind of read the rest of his stuff, you're just like, oh, you're nuts. <laughs> 
Oh, you're just insane. Oh my god. Okay. Yeah, and like, I, the rest of Dobson's story gets darker because he was um, very much an advocate for gay conversion therapy. Mm. Um, and uh, that doesn't lead to good places ever. No. Um, so, yeah, he's a... He is kind of a monster. He's the one who somehow managed to get the final interview with Ted Bundy. Oh my gosh. In which Ted Bundy blamed his viewing of pornography on murdering and raping people. Oh, wow. Like, anti-porn advocates to this day cite this. Yeah. Wow. It's bonkers. And also, uh... Bundy was probably lying um, because he specifically said in court that that wasn't the reason. Wow. Right. Right. <laughs> There's right. a whole mess of things here. Yeah. That like, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Oh my gosh. And so like, I don't even know where to go. So now you're in college and you're starting yeah. to question things. And so yes. then then my next question for you is where where was the turning point for you? So there's a couple. Mm-hmm. To be honest, um, and they kind of stretched over the next like five or six years. So my junior year of college, um, I had been dating this girl. I decided I wanted to marry her. Um, so we were talking about this is a weird thing to talk about for the record. Like as like a 20 year old and looking back, I understand that we were talking about like the church we wanted to start our life in. Like that was what we were doing. Right. Right. And that was like a common conversation for people yeah. like around me. That was a thing we were all talking about. Yeah. Um so we uh we found this tiny tiny church um that was a reformed episcopal church. So the reformed episcopal church is an even still an evangelical church but it's an evangelical anglican church. Mm-hmm. Okay. They believe almost all the same things but they're they're very much in that reformed camp that I was talking about before. I see. Okay. So, and they're an Episcopal church, so they do things like they do Eucharist, not communion, which is like a splitting hairs difference, but essentially you, in order to receive like the sacraments, you go up and you actually accept them and you kneel. Um, There's a lot of standing, there's a lot of like praying, Mm -hmm. all of that. It's very much a liturgical service. Okay. My father thought this was absurd. My dad was raised in the Roman Catholic Church, and to him, this was just Roman Catholic light, and therefore wrong. I see. So he and I got into some very heated discussions about this, and so it, that wasn't as big of a break. Like, we, we kind of got to the point where, like, we're not going to agree on this, and that's fine, because ultimately we are believing the same things. Mm-hmm. Um, that church ran into problems. We left that church. A bunch of other things happened. Um, but that was kind of the first moment of, like, oh, I'm actually disagreeing with my parents on this. Right. That's uncomfortable. Um, And that was, like, the first kind of time that you experienced that? Yeah. Very much so, yeah. Um, Wow. At least directly. Right. Yeah. Yeah. How was Um, it uncomfortable? Like, I'm I'm curious about that. I mean, intuitively it makes sense, right? But I'm wondering, like, what the experience was like (sighs) for you. Um... There's a lot of fear. That there was a lot of fear. Mm-hmm. Um, 
over and above, kind of above all the theological stuff, um, my father was very much a consistent force in my life, mm-hmm. my entire life. Yeah. Um, and he is quite literally a force. He is pretty forceful as a person. Um, just like very commanding presence, very charismatic person. Um, and so like disagreeing with this person that I knew to always have been right in the past was terrifying. Yeah, totally. Um, and even, even if it had been a move that had been like slowly coming, like I stopped caring about the end times prophecy stuff a while ago. Like it was just like, something's going to happen. We don't know what, and honestly trying to make sense of these prophecies is sort of a sucker's game. Um, cause like, I, how are we supposed to do that? Right. Um, right. And all of that. Um, like I was, I'd already been there for a minute and then, you know, all the church stuff happened. So like there was this genuine fear there. Mm-hmm. Um, and then after that, uh, I got married. Uh, I dropped out of college. Um, and so, you know, started doing the, the young married person life thing, living in a crappy apartment, you know, all that. Um, and being actually on my own in primarily the secular world instead of the Christian world now. Yeah. Um, like, still going to church, but, like, I was working around non-Christians. Right. Exclusively. Like, the, there's almost no Christians around, like, quote-unquote Christians, almost no Baptists, like, all of this. So, like, a bunch of stuff started getting challenged. I kind of started, like, losing, not quite, I almost said losing ground, but, like, losing faith in a couple of, like, some of the minor points. Um, the, the whole dispensational reformed viewpoint debate kind of stopped being interesting to me. Mm-hmm. Um, I studied some broader theological movements, like the difference between Calvinism and Arminianism and open theology, which, like, is a rabbit trail and a half and doesn't necessarily, not necessarily worth getting into. Mm-hmm. Essentially, it's a question of, do we have free will, or does God control everything we do? Calvinism falls on the, God controls everything we do. Open theology falls on the, um, God's pretty much ineffectual because he can't know the future, so he can't control everything we do. And, like, Arminianism is in between. Mm -hmm. Um, so I kind of started reading through that stuff, um, I, I don't remember, basically I started kind of being uncomfortable with the dogma yeah. that I'd been taught. Right. And how, how virulently people were holding to it. Like what per- um, like what in particular? Just like what is who this gets a little bit hard. Yeah. Cause this is this is was all very nebulous at the time. Okay. Um I, I can tell you like a good example. Um I'd followed the uh, the writings and the work of a dude named Shane Claiborne for a time. Um he is part of what's called the New Monastic Movement, um, which is a movement kind of using social justice and things as a... It's it's hard. It's essentially... see It sees the gospel and the work of, like, Christians as ears, ears, nah, inseparable from social justice. Okay. So... Interesting. Yeah, it's very interesting. Mm-hmm. Um... So he's a he's very big advocate on on a lot of stuff. Um, he falls into the quote unquote Christian anarchist camp, which I think is a hilarious oxymoron, because um, it's it's just theocracy. Um, <laughs> you can't get around it. Um, but he's he uh, his work recently has been opposing the death penalty. That's been mostly what he's been doing the last I think like ten years now. Um, 
and he wrote a book about it. I don't remember the name of the book. Um, but he, uh, my brother, who was running the library at the time, managed to get him to come speak. So I had already left college, and I came back because this was, like, somebody who was, like, a hero to me. Right. Um, so I sat down with my, you know, my wife at the time, um, and we, uh, were just kind of listening to Shane. And so it was this dude who, like, tall, skinny, white dude, makes his own clothes, has dreadlocks, and, like, a raggy beard, um, and a bunch of very well-dressed professors and a couple of interested students and some other, like, pastors and other, like, people from the community sitting in a library listening to this guy talk. And the pastors, or sorry, the, 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 um, the professors were not happy. (laughs) Oh my gosh. My father included. Yeah. Because essentially this was poking at part of that literal hermeneutic, which is specifically a passage in Romans 13, which says that the government has the right to bear the sword, which means the government has the right to kill people. This was an interesting night to sit in on, including the one pastor basically calling Claiborne a a non-believer and a heretic. Wow. (laughs) That sounds intense. It was really funny. Um, That was also the night that I yelled at my father. (laughs) Because he'd asked a couple of questions, and then, and Claiborne had answered them, and and my dad was like, see, he never actually answered this question specifically how I asked it, and I was like, why are you looking for problems everywhere? Mm-hmm. Like, recognize the work that he's doing as a good thing, even if you don't necessarily agree with it. Mm-hmm. Like, I don't, I don't understand why you're trying to, like, pin this dude into a corner. At all. Yeah. And, um, I'd already kind of moved, at this point, pretty significant theologically. Like, I'd been studying, like, Christian history and some other stuff. And so at the t- at this point, I was, like, further... In- the kind of each step was further and further away. And I'm trying to remember, like, the exact beliefs that I held at the time. Because, um, like, looking back, they're still pretty tame. They're still pretty much kind of... They were moving away from, like, mainline evangelicalism and into, like, more of this, like, fringe evangelical mystical place. Okay. Um, I think this was around this... I think this was the time I actually started referring to myself less as an evangelical or a Baptist and more as um, a mystic huh. or a mystical Christian. Yeah. yeah. Um, and that only intensified for the next couple of years. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was after that point in time where I began wrestling with the question of what to do with LGBTQ people. Mm-hmm. Which is a weird thing to say. Because, like, the question wasn't or not, like, should these people exist? I was kind of already on the point of, like, hey, conversion therapy is awful. Yeah. We should not be doing that. Because I'd had friends in college go through it. Wow. Um, so, at the college, specifically. Like, this oh was happening. Oh my gosh. Um, so, I, uh, I was kind of wrestling with this question. And I remember, like, you know, talking with my wife at the time and going back and forth and we were uh kind of both wrestling with this question what to do with it and how how do we square this with our faith and eventually i was like i was like okay i want to approach this logically we're gonna we're gonna do this like from this perspective of if you know the theology that i hold to is true yeah and specifically the tenets of it that like 
specifically like the tense of like how how God approaches people, which is with grace and love. Uh-huh. Well, then I should also be approaching people with grace and love. Right. So that includes gay people. Okay, I'm there. So if we're approaching with grace and love, then Christ dying on the cross would have covered sin. Okay, great. I'm already there. We've been there. Fantastic. And this is kind of... So studying, like, literally the context in which the passages condemning homosexuality were written, well, what was going on then? And if you start looking at the historical context, um, specifically of the, the passages in the New Testament, um, you get into this interesting place of, huh, this doesn't look a whole lot like the homosexuality that we talk about today. Really? Yeah, there was, um... So the word homosexual, fun fact, didn't exist between before the early 1900s. Yeah, yeah. Okay. So anytime that you see that word in the Bible, uh, that is a translation bias. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, the actual word is effeminate. And essentially actually has more to do with bottoming. Than anything else. <laughs> like, it's... So, like, it's specifically this is a passage in Corinthians where it's basically, like, uh, it's like neither the homosexuals or the adulterers or blah, blah, blah will see the kingdom of heaven. That word isn't homosexuals. It's the effeminate. Wow. So essentially saying the bottoms go to hell. Um, but, you know. <laughs> but, because it really is, like, in that sense, the effeminate is, like, the person who is on the receiving end of sex. Um, which is, like, the worst language to use, but I, I don't know how else to phrase that, so apologies, yeah. but... Um, That's fine. <laughs> so the other the other passage that we'd have to deal with at that point would be Romans. And the whole thing about Romans is, like, well, putting aside... It's in Romans 1, um, and the passage paraphrased very loosely was, like, men turn from God, um, and turning from God turn from natural desires, not desires for women, and burned with lust for each other. And women, likewise. Mm-hmm. Okay, so what happens if they didn't turn from God? And the moment I asked that question, and I didn't have an answer, I knew I didn't have a reason to keep LGBTQ Christians out of my worldview. Mm-hmm. I had to accept them as, like, quote-unquote, fully accept them as fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. Language at the time. Right. So I did. Yeah. Um, and this was this was very particularly the moment for me. So I was standing in my living room and I kind of, my knees kind of gave out and I had to sit down. Because I knew that this would change everything. Because if this was how mm-hmm. I was approaching the Bible now, well, I wasn't approaching it literally. I wasn't approaching a plain reading of the text. So my theology had no underpinning. Um, so I didn't know what to do. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, uh, I pretty much had, had transitioned away from evangelicalism into something else. I didn't know right. what that, that other thing was. Um, 
and at this point, I was, I'm still a Christian at this point, right? Like, that's still, like, a thing that I have nailed down as part of my identity. Um, right. And some of this, like, it opened up some things for me. Like, I was much more comfortable, like, saying that I was bisexual because I'm uh, bisexual. Um, mm-hmm. I was much more comfortable, like, you know, talking about things like that. Yeah. Um, I think at the time I was like, you know, okay, so homosexuality is okay as long as it's monogamous. That's fine. The monogamous thing went out the window within a year or two. Uh, I want to say it was a year, actually. Um, just because, like, again, I started thinking about it, and I was like, well, conclusion to conclusion, why Why is any of this different? Like, we already have non-monogamy in the Bible, and that was never condemned, so, like, why? I don't, ha- I don't have a reason for this other than, quote-unquote, traditional family values, which aren't actually rooted in Scripture. They're rooted in a nostalgic concept of what people are supposed to be. Um, so I stopped going to Baptist churches. I went to a mainline Episcopal church, um, and started talking with the, um, the reverend there, um, whose name is Mother Barnes. Um, she's a wonderful person, um, and a lesbian. So I went from being in a Baptist church to going to a church literally run by an out lesbian. And so, like, and at the time, I'm still in it mentally. Like, I'm still in the faith, quote-unquote, even if the faith was looking different for me. And so, like, I didn't know what to do, so, well, I still want to do ministry, so maybe I should go to an Episcopal seminary. I should finish my degree and go to Episcopal seminary. Oh, wait, so at this point, you want to, like, do ministry, or go to ministry. What is that? Yeah, so that, that, so, yeah, I wanted to be in the ministry, quote-unquote. Okay. Um, And that had always been a goal for me, and I didn't know what it would look like. Mm-hmm. Um, but pretty much the entire time growing up, except for the brief moment of time where I wanted to be a recording engineer, um, I wanted to do something in the ministry. Um, for a while it was counseling, for a while it was like pastoral work, sometimes it was a mixture of the two. Like I I had a bunch of wild ideas about what I wanted to do. Um I kind of transitioned and was like, okay, well, actually an Episcopal minister does counseling. It does all they do all these things that I want to do. So maybe I should look into that. I'll never forget the day. Like I was actually in I was at the the um the campus talking with my dad and I was like hey I think I want to go to seminary and his face lit up like he was so excited for me like I think I think he might have started crying at one point like it was a weird moment <laughs> um and then uh so so that happened um and that summer the the church did a um did a thing on centering prayer like it was a kind of like a, a running weekly class on centering prayer which is a, a meditative prayer rooted in like the mystic tradition of christianity it's pulled from a quote from john merton who says that when he prays he goes inside himself to meet the divine so that is essentially what it, you what centering prayer is it's supposed to pull you internally to meet god inside of yourself there's a warning before you do centering prayer, which is this might bring up psychological and emotional issues for you. If that happens, not necessarily stop doing centering prayer, but you might need to take a break and, you know, go get those things in order. That's fine. That's part of the process. For me, um, this led to a couple of things, um, including some of the only, like, I can only describe them as mystical experiences. Um, I don't have other language for them. Um, the one was a very powerful thing, actually, on Easter in the middle of church when I was kneeling to, to receive um, 
the the bread. Um, Where for a moment I was not in the room. It was a very strange experience, and I don't know how to quantify it anymore at all. Um, it's the only thing I have to believe that there is something greater out there at this point. Um, more regularly than that, there was a very specific image of, like, straight out of, like, almost Arthurian myth of, like, just a hand holding a chalice. And that would be a recurring thing that would happen when I was, like, in this centering prayer state. In looking back, I kind of view that in, in some languages, like, being kind of the, the spiritual embodiment of the feminine. Like, that, that chalice is, like, a very, like, feminine, classically feminine um, symbol. And because this was about the time period that I started having, not having, but I started to actually be attuned to the under rumblings of not quite being a cis dude. Um, and it actually took about another six months before I vocalized that to anyone. And at that point, um, yeah. I kind of knew it was over <laughs> in a lot of ways. I... <sighs> Looking back now, I'm, I'm about three years now removed from the moment that I actually said, you know, hey, I'm not a cis dude. I'm not a man. I don't know what I am, but I am not a man. And I don't actually remember um, the rest of that month. Wow. Until um, about Christmas. Um, I have some moments, but I was, I was having multiple panic attacks a day. Um, it was it was fairly rough. And there was like other things going on too. Like that that had been the time period that like um, I was exploring polyamory for the first time, or like non monogamy for the first yeah. time. Yeah. Um, and so like there's a bunch of things that happened that like should not have happened at the same time at all. But like don't know how else they would have worked out. Um, and so I uh, yeah, that happened, and I didn't know what to do with it. I couldn't make this work with the, the, the paradigms I believed. So, um, I tried to, I tried to do the church thing for a little while longer, and I just couldn't make it work. Um, even the Episcopal Church, like, reading the Bible yeah. was such a task. Um, it takes so much energy for me to try to, un try to find a way that this book talks to yeah. my actual experience that it is essentially meaningless. Like, I, I was pulling, I was pulling the, the, the this text so far from its original meaning that like I didn't see a use in it anymore and so following that um a bunch of other stuff happened I got divorced um kind of started having to like figure out life literally by myself yeah. for the first time ever and so it was actually in a moment where I'd reconnected with some friends from college where um I was sitting at their kitchen table and I was like I don't think I can call myself a Christian anymore like, I don't even own a Bible anymore. I haven't been to church in years. I have nothing that roots me back into the Christian faith. Um, and that was uh, towards the end of 2019 that I said that. And so that's kind of where I've landed at this point, is, like, I don't mm -hmm. I don't know what to have and what faith I have. I still, on my best days, on my most hopeful days anyway, I still believe that there is something that we can yeah. call divine. Um, I... I'm trying to work out some sort of practice and some sort of ritual for myself just because I think those things are just as people. Um, I think we are spiritual. Yeah. I don't know what that means, but I think we are it. Um, as well as physical be people. Um, it's difficult at this point for me because like, I don't, I don't know what I believe specifically. Yeah. I've studied some pagan beliefs. I've studied like Buddhism, all, you know, 
the, the classic, like, spiritual but not religious kind of thing. I've done almost all of it. But at this point, I'm much more content to be like, hey, I'm a queer person than I am to say, hey, I believe this religious or philosophical thing. Because I think one is actually more, I think, I think being queer is a little bit more informative and not in the sense of like, this is my identity and therefore all of who I am. So if you know a queer person, you know what I'm like. But like, if you want to understand me and like where I'm coming from, it's going to help you more if you understand like queer theory mm. than like specific theology at this point. Yeah, totally. That makes in, sense. in terms of philosophy. Yeah. So yeah, like, um, that's kind of where I've, I've landed. Um, and it's, and it's hard because in many ways, this is so much anymore. The, the, the past year has kind of been the loneliest time of my life. Um, mm -hmm. I didn't have any specific community anymore. Um, the queer communities right. I'd been a part of had kind of fallen apart. The um, church community had been dead to me for years. Um, when I came out to mm -hmm. my parents, that didn't go very well. And it eventually came to the point where I had to say, listen, like, you either need to respect me as a person or we're not going to be able to talk. They basically said, well, our theology won't allow it. And I said, okay, thanks for letting me know. Wow. Wow. Um... And, like, so I, I don't have a whole lot of things to rest on in that sense. Um, yeah. And it's hard because, like, I know, I know, like, when we were talking initially, um, we were talking about, like, you know, oh, uh, I think the pitch for it was, like, we want to talk about, like, how, like, changing beliefs um, affected, like, your exit from a cult or cult-like thinking. Mm -hmm. And, like... It's hard because the thing that falls along with that is that, like, I'm alienated. Um, and especially, like, you know, given the past six months and the way that things have gone, um, you really miss the certainty so much. Yeah. Oh, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Um, actually, I, I had a conversation with, uh, with my ex over text at one point, um, cause just trying to, like, get some stuff, like, logistical stuff straightened out, uh, during the uh, move and stuff, and, um, they're just kind of like, so how are you doing? And I was like, oh, you know, everything's on fire, so that's fun. Um, and we actually had a brief, like, conversation about, like, how weird it is, because, like, it's hard not to think about all the apocalyptic stuff we were taught. Oh my gosh, yeah. <laughs> like, so, like, the, the thing that, like, especially, like, with the, the COVID stuff and all of that, like, there's a specific, like, part in Revelation that talks about, like, um, a, a comet hitting the Earth and, like, killing a third of the Earth's population through, like, illness and plague. So it's just kind of like, oh, I've had the word wormwood spinning around in my head a whole bunch. Um... <laughs> So, like, yeah, that's kind of, like, where I was at for a minute with that. Because, like, it's, it, I don't know where how, where else my brain would have gone, right. you know? Like, totally. this was everything I, I had to believe. So, this is what, like, you know, you kind of rest on. Yeah, for sure. Um, you know, th there's been, there's been plenty of studies that are, if you, like, have mystical experiences, it's more informed, like, the experiences themselves 
the imagery and stuff and the way that you experience it has more to do with like the context that you are in than anything else. So essentially like you give it your own filter right. through which you can like experience it. Um, which I think is like really, a really interesting thing. And I think it kind of plays out too. Like even when like you have like these stressful moments, you kind of, even if you don't believe it all anymore, you kind of go back to it for a second where you're just like, Oh, okay. Terrifying. Yeah. What if this is all correct and I'm just wrong? Um, yeah. and, and honestly, like, at least for me internally at this point, I'm kind of like, you know what? If everything I was taught growing up is correct, that is not a God I want to serve mm. or want to be connected to. Um, mm -hmm. and it took me a very long time to get to that point. Just internally for myself, in order to have any kind of intellectual honesty, um, or just, you know, self-awareness, I guess. Like, yeah. that's a moment of, like, I can't walk back from this. But at the same time, like, looking at the world and how I understand it, and the variety and the amount of people in it that have historically existed, mm -hmm. I cannot say that the, the way that the that evangelicals represent the divine is anything I want to be a part of. Right. Um, and if there is something out there that is, you know, what like, I keep using the phrase the divine because like, that's the most nebulous way I can think to describe it. Mm -hmm. um, so if that is true, if there is something out there, then I don't think it looks like the evangelical God at all. And so basically, like, to sum up where you are right now, like, from where you came to where you are right now, um, you know, you grew up in this super evangelical, like, Baptist, you described it, or maybe I said this, and maybe you agreed, like, insular community, really mm -hmm. kind of cult, like, and yeah. um, you were, in, like, you, you were into it, then you weren't, and now you are, like, openly queer, um, do you identify with like non-binary? Yeah, so I oh, no. I am yeah. non-binary. Um, yeah. I, I have, uh, <sighs> gender is so weird, and I'd like gender is weird. <laughs> if you want to talk for another two hours, at some point we could talk about gender because <laughs> um, yeah. I can go on for a while. Um, <laughs> for sure, gender is bizarre, and I don't entirely know how I interact with it at this point either. Um, yeah. So yeah, like I'm, I'm queer, I'm non-binary, I'm polyamorous, like uh, I live with two partners who are also dating each other. Like, this is bizarre. <laughs> <laughs> this is not like, this was not the life I thought I would have at 21. Yeah. Like when I was 21 and getting married, you know, I wasn't like, hey, in seven years, I'm going to be living by radically different standards. Right. To the point where like, right. if I could see myself... I would be terrified. Yeah. But at the same time, this is also all the standards that I wanted to be living by at the time, um, and thought about and dreamt about, but couldn't actually express. Yeah. Um, because I think, like, I'm gonna go meta for a second, if that's okay. 
Sure. I think I've been trying to think actually ever since the last time that you and I talked, um, like that, that initial like pre conversation. Mm-hmm. Um, I've been trying to think about like why, why specifically I would say that I was raised in a pseudo cult or something like that. Yeah, there was some stuff that I didn't do, there was some weird stuff that I definitely was involved in, but like most of it was I went, I played sports in school. Um, I did summer jobs, you know, I, I had a fairly quote-unquote normal upbringing for like, you know, a white suburban American kid. But the thing that really kind of sticks with me is how you can express things and how you can express desire and how you can express internal thoughts and feelings. Because how I was raised, you can't. Um, it took me until I was 25, almost 26, to literally say the phrase, I am not a guy. And looking back, I can see multiple moments of my life that I was very close to the edge of that. And I shut it down hard. Yeah. Um, I, uh... Ooh, I mean, I was fantasizing about gay sex pretty much from minute one in terms of, like, sexuality. Like, yeah, my sexual awareness grew and I immediately was like, hmm, I think I want more than this. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, and, you know, like, 2019, I was at Pride. Mm-hmm. I mean, specifically, I was at the Queer Liberation March. Which was an response to Pride because you know, um, but like yeah, like I was I was there. Yeah. I marched through New York City like, surrounded by queer people, um, and like, I have art up on the wall and some of it is like I have pictures of ships because I love ships and they're great. I have an actual icon from Jerusalem that a old friend had brought back to me that I thought it's like a picture of. Mary holding baby Jesus. It was blessed by the patriarch of Jerusalem. Um, it is hanging next to and underneath two separate paintings, both of which depict an angel and a demon in various sexual encounters. Um, I have a, a piece of grating from Spencer's because I worked there for a little bit. Um, and so I have that pinned to my wall and I pinned on top of that I have pictures from the past year with me and my partners. Um, so, like, I have all of this stuff that I get to look at now and be like, this is what I've been dreaming of. But I couldn't yeah. say that. Um, mm-hmm. And, like, it, and, you know, when you put it like that, like, you're like, yeah, well, evangelicals don't like queer people, so that's fine. Like, I mean, it's not, but, like, it's, it's more understandable to a certain extent. But, like, the, the ways that this outplays are so damaging. Because, like, it's not just queerness. Yeah. Which, like, if we're being honest, a lot of straight people are just uncomfortable with anyway. So that's not necessarily going to resonate. But it's more like stuff like, it was weird that I admitted I had anxiety in college. Hmm. Yeah. It's taking me until now to actually start dealing with the fact that I have ADHD. 
because that wasn't actually a thing you were allowed to have when I was growing up. We had the research. We knew this was a thing. But inside my communities, it was an excuse for parents to not do their job. Right. So the answer to ADHD and attention issues was you discipline your child harder. Wow. Um, you know, since I was socialized as a man, mm-hmm. I was taught that emotions were bad. Which, as somebody who, you know, has ADHD, and the research on this is definitely in that, like, if you have ADHD, you feel emotions very, very intensely. Oh, yeah. Totally. Mm-hmm. Um, and, like, you know, I have anxiety. Mm-hmm. And actually, a lot of it stems from the fact that I couldn't express things. Yeah. For years. Um, you know, a fairly major part of this is, you know, my dad started experiencing some significant health issues when I was a senior in college. Um, or, sorry, a senior in high school. Um, he had to get a series of procedures done. And none of it was life-threatening, but, like, I don't know if it matters if, like, you hear the words brain surgery and life, like, it doesn't matter if it's not life-threatening brain surgery, it's brain surgery. <laughs> yeah, right, right, right. And right. as, like, a 17, 18-year-old who's, like, in, in honestly, in a very insular place, um, watching the strongest person I'd known suffer Mm -hmm. constantly and then go in for brain surgery and literally not be allowed to talk about it with anybody. I was not allowed to tell people that this was something that was happening. Um, and talking to my dad a few years later, um, he was like, yeah, I think that might've been a mistake. And I was like, yeah, little bit. (laughs) He's like, I just, he's like, I was really hoping that like you would just have enough faith. And I was like, buddy, (sighs) I don't know how I could have had faith in that moment. Like, faith in what? I was terrified. I was, you know, you were four hours away having a brain surgery. I was in a high school class. Not paying attention because that was already a hard thing for me, but specifically that day because, like, my father's having brain surgery. I don't know how I could have had faith in that moment. I don't know what faith I should have been looking to have. Um, and like that conversation I had with my dad was actually something I think about a lot because he even said like you know I sometimes wonder if like all the things I've been through medically have been to test your faith and I was like please don't put that on me (laughs) I really don't want that (laughs) at all um yeah and like and that's the thinking and I think more than anything it's not about specific beliefs that changed. Yeah. I mean, like, my beliefs all changed. Like, I, I believe almost nothing that I did then. Right. But the way I thought about things had to change. Mm-hmm. And I think that's a big thing that, like, doesn't happen for a lot of people. Um, like, you see people come out of the evangelical community and fall right into militant atheism. Mm. Mm-hmm. and that transition makes a lot of sense to me yeah because they d- the work isn't at least in this sense the work of like undoing this kind of religious upbringing and religious thinking isn't about 
simply leaving the beliefs behind. Mm -hmm. You have to learn how to think differently. Yeah. Because you aren't taught a lot. You aren't taught how to think in like color, basically. Mm -hmm. Right. You aren't, you aren't even taught how to think in shades of gray. You were taught very black and white thinking. Right. And in order to leave that behind, you actually have to open up to say, Hey, maybe not all of evangelicalism is bad. You you have to leave room for that. <laughs> Which mm -hmm. is uncomfortable. Because it'd be a lot easier for me to say everything I was taught was awful. Right. But I, you know, I had a conversation with one of my friends a, a little while ago. And um, we'd gone to school together and, like, the school had treated her awful. And I don't understand how she said this. But she actually told me that she was really, like... She thought that the way we were raised had given her a better foundation for life. And I was like, huh, I can't say that I agree, but fair enough. Wow. And, like, she doesn't believe any of it at all. Right, right. But she, like, she feels like she can handle life better because of how we were raised. Which is, like, not my experience in the slightest. Yeah. But I have, but, like, I have to leave room for that. Right. That makes sense. Yeah. And, like, it, that's, again, like I said, that's, like, kind of more meta because, like, this is just, like, what I've been thinking about recently is, like, <sighs> we're, we're in a time frame and a period of time where everything, and, and this is the most cliche things, thing to say right now, but talk about, like, how everything's polarized. Because it is, right? Like, right. it's very much lines are drawn in the sand, right? Mm-hmm. And, uh, as somebody who, you know, identifies as queer and non-binary, um, I don't like lines. <laughs> yeah. I don't yeah. think they're helpful. <laughs> <laughs> like, genuinely speaking, I don't. Um, I, mm -hmm. I don't sit well being boxed in very long. Like, I think, like, actually, we uh, spoke, I think, I don't know, a little over a month ago now. Um, and I, like, I think I described myself as an anarchist at the time. And I don't even know if I can say that now. Speaking, you know, in internally from someone on, like, more of the left politically now, mm -hmm. um, who does kind of look at, like, the modern democratic movement and be like, hey, could you please, for the love of God, stop acting like Republicans? Holy shit, we need to learn how to think in shades of gray. I am all for condemning fascism. Right. Like, yeah, hardcore. Um... Nazis are bad and we should not allow the rise of fascism in this country as much as we can. That being said, not all Republicans are fascists. And I understand, like, the GOP is politically bankrupt. They're, like, morally bankrupt. But not all Republicans agree with them. Mm -hmm. And we have to be careful with that. Because we will alienate so many people. And we do. Like, I mean, the left is a very alienating thing. Um, and not just because of, you know, indoctrination of propaganda against the left. It's also because we don't do ourselves any favors. And, like, I don't want to turn this entirely into, like, a critique of the left, but, like, we have to understand that we need to actually embrace more viewpoints in people like we claim that we want to, which actually means talking to them, which actually means understanding where they're coming from. Because guess what? It's great to say that you want to stand up for Muslims, 
Um, yeah, fantastic. Do it. But also talk to Muslims, find out what they believe, and realize that if you're you're probably going to be uncomfortable at some point. Mm. Because it is still a religion. I like I'm, I'm not trying to, like I'm just trying to use like an example like I don't have any issues with Islam as a faith specifically. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um right. I'm not trying to condemn that. I'm not trying to fall into Islamophobia. But at yeah. the same time is like if I'm having a philosophical discussion with someone who is Islamic, we're going to disagree. Right. And it sounds like what I think you're getting at is how are you going to reconcile that? Yeah, exactly. Right. Like internally right. with yourself, yeah. with the viewpoints that you claim to, to believe, how are you going to say, okay, I still see you and I'm still going to respect you as a person. Right. And because exactly. that's the thing that, that I'm seeing that we're not doing. Right. At the, at the end of the day, um, it's really easy to go out and look at the Trump supporter and be like, you are a piece of shit, bud. And uh, a lot of them are, you know? <laughs> yeah. I'm not going to deny that. Right, right, right. They're very vocal. Mm. But there's something fueling that. Mm-hmm. And you need to understand what's fueling that. You did not just get Trump supporters from minute one. Things have happened. They have fallen into propaganda. They've fallen into consp- conspiracy theories. Um, all of this stuff that that the system that we're currently under is really good at creating. And you cannot just win them over by screaming at them. I am all for screaming at the people that need to be screamed at. Um, and the leaders of these movements should be screamed at. They should be silenced. And I'm not saying that they shouldn't be. Like, I, I had a, a friend from work um, who, like, transitioned out of jobs. And his last day, like, we were talking, and he teared up because he looked at me and said... I think you have been more of an impact than anyone else in my life. And I was like, what? Oh my gosh. <laughs> and he was just like, I just. That's awesome. Like, I was like, yeah, no, this was like a moment. I was like, okay, what? And he was like, yeah, I, I have never had the opportunity to talk about things with someone the way that you talk about things. Wow. And like the things that we talked about were just being queer or being non-binary. Yeah. And, like, legitimately it was just me existing in a space around someone who I got along with, and so this is the stuff that came up. Right. And, you know, there was some counterexamples of some people that I don't get along with at work, and, like, they would say some dumb bullshit, and I would say, hey, that's some bullshit. <laughs> Please stop. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And that was initially what led to, to you know, me and this guy having these conversations of, like, so what does this mean for you? And I was like, well, it means this. And that was enough for him to realize that, like, hey, there are more people in this world than I have experienced. Yeah. And that was, like, and those moments are important because, like, I'm not saying I saved this dude from being a Trump supporter. I don't think he would ever care enough. Um, <laughs> but, like, I am saying that we are go- we will miss out on these conversations if we don't learn how to think more carefully. Mm-hmm. And it's not something I'm good at. Like, I'll be honest. I fall much more on the side of, like, hey, let's just call a bunch of people racist assholes and, like, be done with it. Yeah, right. It's easier. But it's so much easier. Oh, it's, it's more so satisfying, much too. That <laughs> yeah, moral high seconds. horse. It's a beautiful yeah. view. Yeah, no, it's great. Being on Twitter for, like, 
oh, a couple of hours and just like getting really into a fight with some like transphobic asshole where you get to call them a transphobic asshole. It's fantastic. <laughs> it's a great feeling. I mean, it's not actually you. It, <laughs> and that's the thing is like, it feels great when you see like the likes pile up, you know, you're like, yeah, five yeah. people liked this. This is it's great. It's empty though. It's so empty. Yeah. And especially cause like, then you have to keep going and you keep having to like argue with them and it's just yeah. not worth it. Like there's, there is no point at the end of the day that like arguing with someone who's defending uh, transphobic people, um, is gonna ever, you know, make you feel fulfilled in life. Yeah. And, like, it's necessary. You still have to do it sometimes. Mm -hmm. For the most part, just, like, hit the block button and walk away. It sounds like your experience, then, with everything, like, with, you know, mm. your cultish experience, your leaving, it has given you deeper insight into um, the realities of black and white thinking and being able to see where that happens, even in the spaces that you feel more genuinely aligned with now. Um, and I think that's a really valuable perspective. It's also kind of annoying, though, because <laughs> I also can't be content inside communities or philosophies. Yeah, for sure. Um, in the slightest, actually. Like... It is so hardwired into me at this point to treat everything skeptically that it's annoying. Mm -hmm. Um, like I at this point just want to like sit down and just relax and just be like, I just want to think nicely about how the world works. And immediately it's like, okay, but do you know anything about how the world works? And I'm like, okay, never mind. <laughs> I'm gonna play um, a video game instead because I can't do this. <laughs> And it is kind of frustrating because it does make some things like communities harder because like when you're in a community that's organizing around a certain issue, it's not really great to be the naysayer in that situation who's kind of looking at it from a different angle constantly being like, okay, but have we thought about this? Right. In which case most people are going to get annoyed with you very quickly. Mm -hmm. Because they're like, can you please just stop? And the answer to that is no, I cannot. Well... Thank you. Do you have, yeah. so do you have any like final words of wisdom that you'd like to to share? I mean, I feel like you just offered so much. Um, <laughs> but but do you have anything like before we kind of wrap up? I'm actually yeah, I'm actually going to plug a book real fast because I think it's actually it's sure. what I've been thinking about a lot. It's a book called Strange Rights um by Tara Isabella Burton. Um the the tagline is New Religions for a Godless World. Um, it is specifically examining the way that um, the, the people who are, like, spiritual but not religious or, like, don't have any set faith um, are still doing the religious things outside mm -hmm. of, like, traditional religious communities. And so it examines things like Soul Cycle and CrossFit and Ooh. kink and queer and polyamorous communities and right-wing Twitter and, like, right-wing online stuff. Like... And it's calling them religions because that's how they function for these people. So uh, if you want to, you know, really examine how you interact with everything in your life for a while, <laughs> go buy this book. I It's on, like, I think it's on Amazon. Um, if you're uncomfortable using Amazon, I use Thrift Books, which might be owned by Amazon. I don't actually know at this point everything is, so, like, who cares? Um, uh, yeah, um... Just, like, kind of, because it also kind of goes back into the whole, like, what I was just talking about with, like, the black and white thinking, because communities are going to be insular. 
Mm-hmm. And it doesn't matter what community you're in. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You're going to have people that are in the community, you're going to have people outside of the community. And at least from my perspective, the trick of being a good moral person <laughs> is learning how to think outside of your own community. And at the end of the day, that's, I think, what we need to work on as people, as an entire world of people, that is, in my viewpoint, the trick to understanding and becoming a better person. Learning how to see things from outside your own perspective for long enough that it actually changes you. Mm -hmm. And if we can do that, maybe you'll stop screaming so much. (laughs) But also, maybe we can actually start screaming at the people that need to be screamed at in a meaningful yeah. and effective way. And in a way that isn't... Like, <laughs> yeah, I mean, like, exactly. <laughs> and also in a way that is constructive and is dreaming of something better. And not just, this is what's wrong with the world. We understand. Most people are on board. But most people don't have an alternative. So, yeah, it's really, um, I'm going to plug my blog for a second, which is dangerouslythoughtfulblog.wordpress.com. It's uh, not updated regularly in the slightest, but I have a thing that I need to actually edit and post there, which I think I'm going to do over the next couple days. Uh, So hopefully by the time this is released, this, it'll be out, but it's on being uncomfortable because I think it's important. I think it's important to be uncomfortable. Um, and also, have, I'm, I'm dreaming up a couple of other things, including stuff on gender and on um, on grief and how like how to process leaving communities. Um, I think that's a lot of like what, what needs to happen is like we need to learn how to be uncomfortable because otherwise we're staying where we're at. And that's never a good thing. Stagnation is never a good thing internally. Because I know, I know, at least for me, the moments that I've been stagnant, have been the worst times of my life in terms of how I've treated other people. If you'd like to hear more from Kai, you can check them out on Instagram at Flowery Space Punk or take a look at their blog they mentioned, dangerouslythoughtfulblog.wordpress.com. I'll link those both in the show notes. Thanks for listening to another episode of Out of the Woods. I'm your host, Molly Mann. You can follow the show on Instagram at Out of the Woods Pod, and I will see you next time.